You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Yes, at that time of the evening, will you join us on Wasail Al-Alam Sadiqa, Truthful News. And uh, alhamdulillah, this evening uh, we've got uh, our very own uh, Professor Andre Duvonaga joining us. He's well known from the Northwest uh, Universities, uh, one of those uh, political analysts that is well sought after around the world. And uh, yes, uh, this evening uh, we'll be talking about the blame game and the blame game. And perhaps we'll put it to rest now, 30 years later, or oh, 28 years, 29 years later, you still find the ANC complaining and complaining and complaining. Yeah, we blame it on apartheid. Well, they have created an inferno. They have burned the country. They have left the country in ruin. Uh, presently, it seems as if the country is uh, dysfunctional. Good evening, Prof, and thank you very much for joining us. Uh, good evening, Jafar. Shafat, nice talking to you again. Yes, sir, Prof. The question that uh, beckons, and you know, I think you and I had uh, thousands of conversations over this, and you know, the blame game of blaming apartheid for your failures, or blaming it like you remember Hansi Kronier when it was uh, that uh, saga of uh, the uh, you know the f- uh, match fixing and uh, taking money and so forth, and you know, Hansi was pointing. He said the devil made me do it. So, but uh, with the ANC, it's always the same rhetoric. Apartheid made us do this. This is why we're in this fix, and this is why we're in this mess. How do you react to that, Prof? Well, but uh, my take on it is that if you want to be successful in life, if you want to be successful in politics, if you want to be successful in every area of life, you need to take responsibility for yourself. And you cannot always blame the environment. In fact, it is your job to change the environment to make it a better place. And the ANC constantly, since 1994, they are busy with a topic uh, to make a better life for all. And by putting the blame on apartheid or whatever, uh, white people, immigrants, whatever you would like to put into that space, is a clear indication for, uh, of their inability to deal with the situation, to change it for a better outcome. In short, to me, this is an indication that the ANC failed in terms of its basic, basic objectives to the extent that the ANC may be going down in history as the biggest governmental failure since the existence of the state. Yeah, absolutely, Prof. And also, you know, when you think about the ANC, uh, when Nelson Mandela came in, uh, you know, in, in the 1994 elections, it was not only the black population that voted for him, it was a lot of, uh, you know, people of other race. So ANC hasn't only let down its own people, but it has actually let down the whole of South Africa because we all embraced it, we celebrated it, and uh, the uh, you know uh, this is uh, the, the entire population actually gave it that two thirds majority, and uh, they still blame apartheid on that. Uh, your reaction, Prof? Well, Shafat, there's no doubt that uh, they find in apartheid a scapegoat, and uh, basically, and that's a, a absolute irony is what they have left to defend themselves is the legacy of apartheid. They cannot show a single area 
where they performed, where they improved, where they make a situation better. And all we have is the one plan after the other, the one committee, the one manager after the other, everyone with a new plan, keeping up for a year or two, then he or she is gone. And so we continue from bad to worse until we are in a scenario with what we can regard as a failing state, to me already a failed state in very, very important aspects. Quite interesting about two, three years back, that was very controversial to argue the point of a failed state. The people were saying, no, it's an overstatement, it's this and it's that. But the fact is at the moment, all people are in agreement that the state is failing us. And at the moment, people are reacting in different ways about the failure of government. One way is to create your own state, your own environment where you try to become functional uh, for your own sake and your own purpose. Other way is to react, to revolt against this. Other way is to contribute to crime or criminality because you don't believe in the system and the effectiveness and efficiency of the system. So there are many reactions in this regard, but this is a dangerous world. It is a world that is concerning many South Africans, and we have seen that uh, in terms of elections with the ANC support coming down around 1999. It was close to about, I think it was 69, something 7% or something like that support for Tabumbeki in the latest local election. We are talking about 45% and just over 50% in the last 2019 national and provincial elections. So people are reacting to it. And in some cases, I'm even picking it up from black people that they openly come to me and tell me that they believe that the times under the dispensation before 1994 was better conditions than the current conditions. Absolutely, Prof, what you talk about, you know, our African uh, brothers and sisters complaining. I mean, uh, you and I both have uh, many uh, good friends and some in high uh, profile uh, positions also. And, uh, you know, one of them just the other day told us uh, that uh, they find it so difficult as uh, middle class uh, blacks. Uh, you know, they uh, have to buy, they bought the house on, uh, you know, like HP, they buy the, the furnitures and so forth. And they say, you know, they are compounded by debts upon debts. I mean, they're paying the bank the interest, they're paying interest on or whatever they bought, their cars and so forth, and uh, they just can't make ends meet, but they have the tag of being, uh, you know, uh, middle-class uh, citizens. And then they say SARS also taxing them to death. Uh, your reaction, Prof? Well, Shafat, yes. Uh, for society, for the composition of a prosperous society, we have a very strange uh, composition. We have a small elite that is relatively rich, some extremely wealthy. We have, according to my assessment, not that big a middle class. And then we have about 55% of the population living under the poverty line. So that is the composition. Now, who are the taxpayers? When you are super rich in most cases, you can transfer your wealth to other places. You can uh, ring fence. Uh, the SARS ability 
to get hold of you in, in many ways because you have the opportunities to deal with that. The person that are really paying is the middle class guy. And the middle class is not that big in South Africa. The result is a small tax base. If I can quote my colleague Davi Ruet saying out of 60 million people, the government are paying more than 30 million people from state income. That is either social grounds or positions. And in many ways, Shafat, that is not sustainable. Now, on top of it, we have an unemployment rate of 46%. And uh, this is basically the result of government policies and the way it is implemented, specifically the whole notion of radical economic transformation and how it endanger vested interest in the country. Uh, we can also uh, argue that uh, uh, the high employment rate uh, can be seen within a context of the B policies and uh, radical radical economic transformation. So in a nutshell, uh, the middle class are paying the price for all of this. But the middle class in South Africa is also an interesting phenomenon. If I can quote the late uh, Professor Lauren Schlemmer, he said that uh, the middle class should be, and he's quite right, the bourgeois group, they should be the medical doctors and people like attorneys and uh, people functioning independent from the state. In South Africa, the middle class is people that are employed by the state and represented uh, by uh, institutions like COSATU. So it is not a normal environment we are in. And many of our problems are coming from this, but over-regulation, weak implementation, lack of infrastructure, these are all contributing factors to the environment we are in at the moment. Yeah, Prof, I recall doing a poem uh, when I was in metric, I think, uh, du, uh, you know, Dulce uh, Decorum Est Propotria Limore, you know, how beastly the bourgeoisie is. Uh, that was a f- uh, during the French Revolution, Prof. I don't know if you did it. No, Shafat, I didn't do it, but, but I understand the context from where uh, the poem is coming, and uh, I understand the content. Uh, at that point in time, it was an environment where you have... Uh, rich people, the industrialists, and they were in conflict with the real poor people. There were not strong legislation supporting uh, the labor context. We had child labor. So there was a lot of uh, certain practices. I can understand that context, but that environment is not applicable to the current South African context. In many ways, we are overregulated. The state are completely on the side of labor. Uh, to the extent that we can, uh, in effect, be defined as a communist uh, state, uh, although we are very much corrupt as well by many people on the functional line who call us corrupt. But yes, I can understand that poem. But the fact of the matter, we must also ask another question. Who are the dynamo for growth, development, and empowerment. And I think Salah Ramaphosa said it at the State of the Nation address earlier this year and at other occasions, where he basically argued that um, uh, 
the state cannot create jobs. It's not the job of the state to create jobs. It's the job of the private sector. And the job of the state is to create an environment in which the private sector can flourish, where they can develop, where they can build, where they can employ. Now, at the moment, the government is putting obstacles in the place of uh, the private sector. In fact, according to the National Democratic Revolution and its ideology, the private sector is the enemy. And we will see in the next two days, uh, there will be a part in the ANC conference talking about strategy and tactics and the balance of forces. And you will see who are the enemy. The enemy are the people that would like to invest in the country would like to contribute, but the ANC as an organization don't only see themselves as government, they see themselves as a group that need to control society, the economy, every area of life, and every area of life should be representative in this way, reflecting the macro demography of our society. Absolutely, Prof. And, you know, I was uh, thinking that when Nelson Mandela took over and, you know, he's got his uh, cabinet together, his ministers, he brought in a lot of Indians because, uh, you know, he knows that the ANC was helped uh, by uh, the Tick and Nick, you know, Transvaal Indian Congress, the Natal Indian Congress. And, uh, you know, at that time, there was also this tension. Will he choose uh, Cyril Ramaphosa? Will he choose Thabo Mbeki? And uh, there he went. His first choice, I believe, was... uh, uh, Cyril Ramaphosa, but uh, eventually the cause, a factor came in and uh, he did uh, choose uh, Thabo Mbeki as his successor. And it, it seemed at that time, at the outset, uh, many uh, black South Africans were not happy with uh, Mandela's choice and the way he structured his cabinet and so forth. And, uh, you know, it was uh, this uh, compromise. But I think he had to do that because uh, many of the blacks uh, say themselves, uh, you know, Mandela actually sold out the liberation or sold out the cause because he allowed Anglo-American to still be the boss uh, when he was uh, given, uh, you know, release from the, the prison and that he had to sign certain documents to ensure that uh, these uh, conglomerates uh, ran the country. And some even went to the extent and said, in the morning, uh, Mandela gives a key to the conglomerates or Anglo-American and uh, Rupert and so forth. And in the evening, they give it back to him to say, we keep the key warm for the morning. Your reaction to that, Prof? Well, Shafat, yes. I think if we talk about Mandela, we need first to say that he was the leader of a government of national unity. So it was supposed to be a diverse, inclusive cabinet accommodating different groups and different interest groups. So that is the first point. The second point, his relationship with the corporate sector uh, was a positive one. The argument are now within the academic literature. I don't know how so well substantiated is it, but the argument is that uh, the, the, the wealthy of South Africa, the Anglo-Americans and the Ruperts and the, these people bought over senior ANC people to, to get their goodwill. And they based uh, their, their principles on that. But the fact of the matter is Mandela at that point in time was in a position to could do basically anything he wanted. He was seen as a bit of a saint. So anything he did should have been accepted. But my take on his term was 
that Mbeki more functioned as a prime minister type of thing, basically doing the government work of the day. At that point, we had two deputy presidents, Mbeki and F.W. de Klerk. And you will remember huge conflict exists between F.W. de Klerk and Thabo Mbeki at that point in time. And at the end of Mandela's term, he went for a candidate outside that framework. And he saw uh, Cyril Ramaphosa as his candidate. And at that point in time, Thabo Mbeki took up the sword, he mobilized, amongst others, the Youth League, the hardcore of the ANC, specifically the exiles, because uh, Ramaphosa was an in-sile uh, UDF-type person. Uh, he mobilized the labor unions and the trade unions and all of them. And the end result was that his power base was just too strong for Ramaphosa. And Ramaphosa left, and on basis of B principles and others, and he was linked to the Mosepis. He built himself a fortune. Some people are saying that it is to the value of something like six or seven billion today. So yes, that is that is the context of that situation. And quite interesting. Only a week ago, at the funeral of Jesse Duarte, Tabumbeki said that Ramaphosa doesn't have a plan for South Africa. And he was extremely critical on uh, uh, Cyril Ramaphosa. And I believe that in some way they should have seen things very much the same. But it is interesting if you look the way of Tabum Beki after becoming president, he also became uh, putting, uh, they put him aside, they put him on the, uh, the periphery of politics, especially the trade unions didn't like his gear policy. And his gear policy was also not effectively implemented. He came into conflict with uh, Zuma as a result of corruption charges. And the end result was at a policy conference and a national general council meeting, like the policy conference we will have uh, over this weekend. The first signals was there for the end of Tabumbeki, that was before the Polokwane conference. Now the question is, are we going to see the signals of the end of Ramaphosa? And I know at 10 o'clock he will make his presentation. Yeah, absolutely, Prof. And then Tabumbeki also warning the ANC, be careful, uh, don't become a black movement. I remember those people uh, that uh, fought the liberation with you. And as we said, uh, perhaps the Indians, you know, were very uh, vociferous in the beginning. Uh, you talk about uh, Dr. Yusuf Dadu, uh, there was uh, Mr. Niker there and so forth. But uh, and then, uh, you know, you find that they not even mentioned. And you find when the July unrest uh, took place, especially in the KZN region, Many, many of the Indians, uh, you know, stopped uh, in, the, in the following municipal election, uh, didn't even vote for the ANC, uh, jumped ship and joined the DA. And uh, many Indian areas uh, turned uh, that were ANC strongholds, uh, turned out to be uh, DA strongholds. And, you know, perhaps uh, this is why, you know, you find uh, different municipalities uh, with a predominantly Indian population too, uh, making the Indians uh, suffer because of what they did.
because they voted uh, instead of uh, voting the ANC in the municipal election, they voted for other parties and in uh, general, or more importantly, they voted for the DA. And uh, would you blame the Indians for jumping ship, uh, Prof? Shafat, maybe I must go back. And just last week, I put on my YouTube and I look at the whole history of the Khan. That has to do with uh, King Shaka Zulu between the times, I think it was about 1816 up to 1828, where there is established that something like a million people, up to a million people, were killed. If you look at the history and the culture of the Zulu nation and their relationship with other groups, you can only at best describe it as extremely hostile and extremely violent. And that is the bigger historical pattern that started even before colonization. My take on it was that during the apartheid times, there were closer relationships between the Indian community and the Zulu community in KwaZulu-Natal and in parts of Gauteng. There's absolutely no doubt about it. But the fact of the matter is that the nation has a strong sense of nationalism. They are driving this Duduma initiative. They are working, uh, they are reflecting in a very, very negative way towards, for example, the Venda group from where Cyril Ramaphosa is coming. We have seen that the past week when, you know, when they had the provincial conference. So I think that the relationships between the Zulu-speaking people and many other groups in the country aren't a positive one. There were elements of cooperation between the Afrikaners and the Zulus with regard to freight when uh, at the time of the Anglo-Zulu uh, wars of the 1860s and 1870s, at that point in time, 1880. Uh, so, uh, but generally speaking, they are a hostile group. And I can understand clearly if we had the scenario last year, July, where groups of people are attacking, attacking uh, other suburbs. And what is interesting about South Africa is that we, in many ways, are still living in the, uh, let's call it the colonial spatial environment. And that has not only to do with the economy and uh, discrimination, it has also a bit to do with people that are grouping together that are likewise, that would like to stay in a certain environment they believe and they feel uh, suited for them. But the point, Shafat, is there's a real danger for the Indian community from a point of uh, Zulu nationalism. And I am, I can understand completely why many Indian people jump ship, as you called it, towards the DA. I think the DA is probably the, the best, moderate, and strongest alternative to the ANC. I cannot see the Indian community functioning within a framework of the EFF. If I listen to what the EFF, I think it was Julius Malema or Floyd Shivambu said, yeah, I think it was here in Schweizerenica, where they openly attacked the Indian community. 
So at this point in time, the Indian community, like the white community, is minority communities. They need to survive in terms of their minority status. Sometimes the status of the minority is higher than the average, make them a target of resistance and violence. And with the current situation playing itself out in the ANC, with the position of the ANC in KZN aligning with the RET forces, which I see as the more radical forces. And if the information is correct, that Zuma is not going to attend the court case and the police will be forced to, to act one way or another, then we may see violence. So I think that the Indian community need to be very careful. They must take not only lessons from the white community or the white minority group, they may maybe even go further than that and align themselves in some way or cooperate with other minority groups in order to get safety and security going. Yes, sir, Prof, I like those analysis of yours. And, uh, you know, also thinking about uh, the KZN region where the monarchy, after the death of King uh, Goodwill Zuelitini, we find uh, that there's no consensus of opinion of, uh, you know, the new king. Uh, there he's his uncles challenging him, his uh, half-brothers and sisters challenging him. And if they can't get their house in order and, um, you know, why talk about blame the apartheid that in Gonyama trustees there and so forth? Many other things coming through, but Proffer, you were absolutely brilliant this evening. Perhaps your parting words. Shafat, yes. What is very interesting, specifically for the people of KZN, go and look what happened in the history of uh, the Zulu people in the 19th century. The history of Chaka, the history of Dengan, Panda, and many other people. And what they will find is that we are at the moment turning back in history. What happened before 1910 is becoming so important, it may even become the norm. Because what you just analyze happening with regard to the monarchy, that is the pattern that we're coming over many, many decades within the Zulu kingdom. The one killing the other, the assassinations are still going. It is the one half-brother taking the other half-brother out. The one is poisoning the other. That is the way they are functioning. To mention one example in this regard, uh, Chaka Zulu had to flit from Zinza Kikone. That was the chief, his father, and his mother Nandi fled with him towards Swaziland. And they stay there. And when Zenza Kukone died, he came back and he was at that point in time a uh, soldier. He could fight. He had learned a number of techniques and he just killed all the opposition to become the king of the Zulus. But the truth of history was also there. If you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And this is what happened to him when he was killed from within his own royal family. This is an old Zulu dynamic. And the problem is the moment you have a leadership change and a government change, there's normally huge violence that is going on. In a completely different context, with taking out Jacob Zuma, we have a modernized form of resistance 
that is picking up. And my take on the situation is that we are entering difficult times. People need to be careful. They need to be well prepared and they must take hands with other citizens and cooperate in order to be safe and secured in these difficult circumstances. Thank you very much, Prof, and have a blessed evening ahead to talk to you soon, Prof. Thank you very much, Shofat. Yes, sir, people, and uh, don't go anywhere because uh, we've got a, a, a beautiful second half uh, coming through and uh, George Galloway will be talking to Gonzalo Lira, who is an author, political commentator. And, uh, yeah, the topic there is uh, Russia is uh, winning the war and uh, don't uh, believe those uh, that you think uh, are thinking otherwise. And then uh, we'll have uh, William Spaniel. Uh, he's talking about uh, ways in which... Uh, you know, the war could end, Ukrainian-Russian uh, uh, war, he calls it. And, uh, well, you listen to it very carefully. And perhaps it's like something what uh, Gonzalo Lira said, uh, yeah, for telling you something that will happen and perhaps captured by the uh, propaganda too. So whenever you listen to anything, when you listen, listen with a discerning ear and... Uh, yeah, don't uh, believe everything that you hear because we are conscientizing you on uh, truthful uh, news. And uh, I can tell you, yeah, really great things are coming up. And uh, inshallah. So next up is uh, George Galloway talking to author and uh, political co- commentator Gonzalo Lira. Take a listen, uh, people. In the early stages of the war in Ukraine brought us first-hand testimony, literally from the streets of Kharkov, where the bombs and the missiles and the tank fire and the artillery shelling was actually audible in the background to the commentary he was given. He's in a much safer place now, but he's still very close to the action. And above all, he's got his ear to the ground and his eye on what might be the prize, the prize being the end of this carnage on both sides. And he joins me now. Gonzalo, thank you very much uh, for uh, joining us. I hope you can hear me. I can no longer see you on my screen. Uh, But if you can hear me, please uh, take from me the salutation of our entire audience that was very worried about you for quite some considerable time and are delighted to see you alive and well now. Please accept my uh, warmest uh, greetings. And turn, if you will, to the warning that you gave just this week, that the Americans themselves are preparing to ditch President Zelensky. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. And I'm a great admirer of you, George, and I will always be very thankful for, for you and all you've done for me. And, and you know what I'm talking about. So thank you. Now, insofar as the current situation in, in uh, Ukraine is concerned, well, um, it, it's, it's, it's so typical of the Americans, unfortunately, of the American uh, foreign policy establishment. They use people, and when their usefulness is over, they throw them away in the most despicable and callous way imaginable. Now, it, it seems very clear that the war in Ukraine is going very, very badly for the Ukrainian armed forces. This is not to question the heroism or bravery of the men or their efforts. On the contrary, the fact that they've lasted so long 
uh, before the Russian onslaught is a testament to their bravery. But the fact is, and this is something that was obvious from the very beginning of this war, the Russian army is simply bigger, better prepared, better equipped, better led, both militarily and politically. And so they are winning. They are winning decisively. Now we are coming to the end of the Battle of the Donbass. At this time, the Russian army has chewed through all of the fortifications that the Ukrainian armed forces had developed over the past eight years. And they are about to hit the uh, Kramatorsk line, which is the last line of this battle, because it's been a series of lines uh, that protect uh, uh, the Ukrainian armed forces and that have held back the Russians. And the Russians have been relentlessly chewing through these lines, and they're getting to the last one. And of course, by this point, the Ukrainian armed forces have been uh, uh, denigrated by the onslaught of the Russian armed forces. And the Russian armed forces are fresh and tidy and, and looking very good and very crisp because they're constantly rotated. Uh, you know, sometimes the, the, the Russians will put in a unit for barely a day of combat and then pull them out and replace them with fresh troops. And so uh, this, of course, means that the Russians always have fresh, rested, well-equipped troops confronting a very weary, very exhausted Ukrainian armed force. And so the, the inevitability is arriving, which is the complete collapse of the Ukrainian armed forces, which I want to insist, it, it, it is not uh, me uh, uh, besmirching in any way or belittling in any way the efforts of the Ukrainian armed forces. It's just the reality on the ground. The Russians are winning. Anybody who says otherwise is just fooling themselves. The HIMARS, which are these uh, multiple, ro uh, multiple rocket launch systems that everybody keeps talking about, this is uh, wonder weapon, you know, pie-in-the-sky thinking. Uh, the, the number of HIMARS being sent to the Ukrainian front are just minimal, trivial. They've sent 20. What the Ukrainians would actually need to be combat effective is maybe 10 times, maybe 15 times that number. I'm talking 200 to 300 high Mars, not 20. And on top of that, of the 20 that they've sent, the Russians have definitively destroyed at least four, and possibly from accounts, an additional two more as of today. It doesn't really matter. The truth is that the Russians are winning. And so what's going to happen is that, see, there will come a tipping point in this conflict where the Ukrainian armed forces will simply collapse. And when that happens, the Russian armed forces will sweep westward from the Donbass, from the Kherson area. They will sweep westward. Uh, the Donbass area, they will sweep towards uh, Dnepropetrovsk, which is a center, which is a city, rather. In, when you're looking at the map of Ukraine, it's dead center. Uh, the Russians will sweep towards that city, and they will probably overrun it. It's the third largest city in, in Ukraine. And in Kherson to the south, which is just north of the Crimean Peninsula, they will probably attack Nikolaev and sweep westward towards Transnistria. Uh, they will probably ignore Odessa, because Odessa is a historically and for religious reasons a very important city to the Russians. And it's already been clear the Russians have telegraphed their intention of taking Odessa one way or the other. But it is unlikely that they will carry out an assault on the city because they don't want to damage it because of the historical importance that the city has. And so what they'll probably do is simply surround it. They will make a dash for Transnistria, cut off Odessa from the north, from Kiev, and just wait it out because time is on the Russian side. And so 
what has been increasingly clear is that the West is realizing two things. Number one, they're realizing that NATO cannot match the Russians. The Russians, in terms of their industrial output, in terms of the amount of artillery pieces and munitions, they simply outclass the West. And this has been clear by, uh, this has been pointed out rather, by Western think tanks. The Western think tanks of the um, Royal uh, Unified Society Institute, which is like a, like the military think tank of Great Britain. There was a very interesting article called The Return of Industrial Warfare, where it was basically pointed out that the West, because of its deindustrialization policies of the last 30 years, which has hurt the working classes of the West so badly, well, precisely because of this deindustrialization, the West does not have the industry to arm its uh, armies, uh, for guilt of the malapropism. And so, therefore, the West cannot simply cannot compete. If they were to go in a head-to-head war with the Russians, they would run out of ammunition. The West would run out of ammunition in about two months with no possibility of resupply. Uh, the famous uh, saying by Stalin that uh, quantity has a quality all its own. It's very true of the current situation and the current conflict. <clears throat> and so NATO, the West, is realizing they cannot compete, fight against the Russians, so they won't, and the war is lost. And so it seems increasingly clear that the position of uh, Zelensky in Kiev is becoming untenable. There have already been signs <coughs> excuse me, um, that, that his position is weakening with the West. And so I think what will happen is that the West will begin to slowly withdraw its support in terms of money, in terms of equipment, <coughs> please excuse me. Um, inflation here is rising, and you can see it in the exchange rate between the Krivna, which is the Ukrainian currency, and the dollar and the euro. Uh, it's fallen 10% in the last three days. Um, three days ago, you could uh, buy a dollar for uh, 37 and a half to 38 Krivnas, and now it's at 41 and a half. So basically about uh, almost 10% in three days, uh, which means, of course, that the Ukraine government, the Zelensky regime, is not getting the foreign currency necessary to keep the government of Ukraine afloat. And so, you know, it, it, these are various signs that are showing that the West is withdrawing its support. And the um, National Security Advisor of the United States, a man named Jacob Sullivan, a man of extraordinary incompetence and stupidity, quite frankly. Well, <clears throat> he has stated publicly that Zelensky should be concerned about his personal safety. He is, Jake Sullivan is basically telegraphing the fact that the, um, that the Americans are thinking of physically getting rid of Zelensky. And of course, they're couching it in the language that the Russians are going to do something to Zelensky which has been a common pattern of the Western uh, military political establishment, whereby they will often say that the Russians are planning to do something when it's in fact what they themselves are thinking of doing, and they're projecting it onto the Russians. This is a very common thing that uh, people have noticed over the last year or so, where the Americans, the Europeans are thinking of something, and they project it onto the Russians when they themselves are the ones who are planning such a thing. I think that 
That's why I believe well, that uh, I said that, so publicly. That, that, uh, Go ahead. Yeah, uh, yeah, you did say so publicly. I want to test. Uh, I want to test that. It's worth the audience remembering that Zelensky is a Russian-speaking Ukrainian. He actually his Ukrainian language is not that good. Uh, his native tongue is Russian. Number two, uh, that Zelensky was elected on a peace platform. He was elected to make peace with Russia. Uh, and thirdly, of course, I want to test your proposition because, of course, the Americans, as the DM brothers uh, could testify if the Americans hadn't uh, had them robbed out in Vietnam, you can be uh, useful for America for a time and then you can be killed. Uh, the, uh, the, the Americans could kill Zelensky. The Russians could kill Zelensky. But much more likely is that people within his own regime would kill him. Either so that they could fill their pockets in the way that Zelensky has filled his, or because they have some vision that the war can be won differently uh, from that pursued by Zelensky. Explore those three mm -hmm. possibilities, if you would. Sure. Number one, it's never going to be the Russians, because the Russians, as many commentators have pointed out, they need Zelensky to be the one to sign the peace agreement, the ceasefire agreement, because the Russians see that eventually some ceasefire will have to be signed. And since uh, Zelensky has so much... Uh, so many people have validated Zelensky as the legitimate leader of Ukraine. The Russians need to have Zelensky sign that ceasefire agreement. If the Russians wanted to kill Zelensky, and, and I'm not saying anything that people don't know, uh, uh, they could have killed him on the first day of the special military operation. It would have been no trick at all, because they know exactly where he is, uh, pretty much at all times, because of their intelligence, both human intelligence and signal intelligence, for the Russians, it would be no trick to kill Zelensky if they wanted to. The fact that he's alive means that the Russians want him alive. And it's very clear why. Because they want him to be the man to sign the peace agreement. So it's not the Russians. Now, insofar as any internal coup, any internal coup that takes place to get rid of Zelensky and replace him would have to have the okay of the United States. Not the Europeans. The Europeans are the Chihuahuas in the story. Okay, the big dog are the Americans, <laughs> the people in the Pentagon and Foggy Bottom. The Foggy Bottom is where the State Department is. Well, those people are the ones who are supporting Zelensky, and any coup attempt against Zelensky would have to have the okay of the big dogs back in Washington. And so uh, I don't think that, uh, you know, there is certainly a lot of palace intrigue and there have been a lot of moves as of late of people getting replaced and then not replaced, you know, fired and not fired. I'm talking specifically about the head of the SPU, the, the Ukrainian State Security Services, which uh, the head of it was a childhood friend of Zelensky's and he was fired by Zelensky. But then the next day, Zelensky walked it back and said, no, he wasn't fired. He was just suspended. You know, that, that kind of palace intrigue, we will never know the truth. And trying to read the tea leaves and figure out what's going on there, it, it's a fool's errand because it, there are too many variables. We don't know what's really going on. All we can see are what the Americans are saying. And that is much more clear. And when the Americans put out a signal that Zelensky should watch himself, that the Russians want to kill him, that's because the Americans are thinking that. 
See, the Russians have no interest in in uh, getting rid of Zelensky because it would cause for the Russians many more problems. Whereas the Americans might be thinking along the following lines: they might be thinking, "Look, the Ukraine is lost. If we have Zelensky and his military leadership killed in a missile strike that we ourselves do carry out, as we've done with other regimes, if we do it." And we blame the Russians. The Americans might be thinking along the following lines: they might be thinking, "Look, the Ukraine is lost. If we have Zelensky and his military leadership killed in a missile strike that we ourselves do carry out, as we've done with other regimes, if we do it, and we blame the Russians, and we get the Western press on board with this story and blame it all on the Russians, and we..." Punt the entire Ukraine nation onto Russia's lap, a, a decapitated nation with no president, no military leadership, and all of a sudden, all of these soldiers, all of them armed, you have chaos, civil chaos, like a situation that happened in Libya, and we punt this whole problem into the lap of the Russians. Well, now that would solve a lot of America's problems very neatly, now wouldn't it? Because It would effectively become a huge problem for the Russians logistically to bring some sort of civil order to the Ukrainian nation. Do recall, Ukraine is the size of France, the size of Texas. It's enormous. It's an enormous piece of country. So to occupy it, to pacify it, you would need at least a quarter of a million soldiers, if not more. And I'm, I'm talking just soldiers, just to be policing the place, not not like a war, just to. To keep social order, okay, and so the Americans, it would, it seems realistic to me with these comments made by Jake Sullivan. It seems realistic to think that they are uh, entertaining the idea of assassinating Zelensky and his military leadership, blame it on the Russians, cause deliberately cause all kinds of civil unrest and anarchy within Ukraine, and have this become a permanent problem for Russia. They did something essentially similar in Libya, whereby they um, manufactured the killing of Gaddafi and turned Libya into a complete basket case. I mean, you know, we, we, in the end of it, we literally have slave trading going on in the streets of Tripoli for crying out loud, and and all of Libya is just uh, you know divided up between various warlords that are constantly fighting one another. Complete chaos, right? And we have the Syrian situation where the Americans have done their utmost to create civil unrest uh, and civil chaos, because ultimately the United States is the empire of chaos, where chaos rules because chaos benefits the United States. So that kind of gameplay seems reasonable. That that kind of 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 approach, which in fact has happened just now in Sri Lanka. Where the Americans, the American NGOs, non-governmental organizations, all these green non-governmental organizations, created the conditions where now you have civil chaos in Sri Lanka, and soon you are going to have famines in Sri Lanka. You know, a complete catastrophe. But this plays into the geostrategic goals of the United States. Because instead of trying to raise up the United States, they find it more convenient to pull everybody down, and that seems to me why it's it's reasonable to think at this time things can change, of course, 
But it's reasonable to think that the Americans are the ones planning to get rid of Zelensky, blame it on the Russians, and let Ukraine, or even push Ukraine, into total civil chaos. Gonzalo Lira, thanks for joining us. Yes, a fantastic uh, input there from uh, William, uh, or was it Gonzalo Lira? He's an author and a political commentator. Really, uh, you know, telling us uh, what uh, America is, you know, a state uh, that or a country that likes to ca- uh, create chaos all over the world. And, you know, perhaps uh, the other day I was just uh, uh, peeping into what uh, William Spaniel was saying, and he was talking about 10 ways uh, that the Ukraine-Russia war could end. So, uh, you know, let's uh, take a listen to his uh, viewpoints. You know, on Truthful News, we like to actually interrogate all these different viewpoints. But in the end, you will make the informed decision. That we are counting the length of the Ukraine-Russia war in months. It's time to start thinking about how it might end. So armed with the knowledge of political science research on that subject, here are 10 ways Russia's invasion of Ukraine could conclude. Number one, Afghanistan syndrome. No, not the Afghanistan war that the United States recently withdrew itself from. This Afghanistan war against the Soviet Union from the 1980s. Brezhnev invaded to prop up a floundering communist government that could have pivoted westward otherwise. The conflict ultimately became the Soviet Union's version of the Vietnam War. A long fight that lost political support at home and ended with a superpower withdrawing with little to show for their effort. The outcome for the Soviet Union was even worse. The economic turmoil led to Mikhail Gorbachev's rise to power and the subsequent breakup of the country. The parallels to today are stark. The United States, led by Congressman Charlie Wilson's efforts, were pleased to provide military assistance to Moscow's opponent. If the trend continues, the war in Ukraine will last for years. Putin will keep enough of his political opponents at bay to survive for a long time. But the war will go nowhere, and Putin's popularity will eventually disappear. Ukraine wins, but at an enormous cost. Number two, Putin removed from office. While public approval numbers for Putin paint him as a popular leader, it is difficult to know exactly how popular he truly is. Autocracies aren't exactly known for eliciting truthful responses from their citizens. If Putin were actually unpopular, this could lead to his removal from office in a few ways. As we've discussed before, a popular protest could unexpectedly arise, overwhelm security forces, and storm government buildings. A single unhappy individual with good connections could assassinate him. Or a more organized group of disaffected politicians and generals could initiate a coup to remove Putin from office. The commonality here is that the new leader would then remove Russian troops from the war and build a fresh regime, free from the burdens of the floundering conflict. Number three, victory day, victory. Circle your calendars now, because this one is coming up. On May 8th, 1945, Germany surrendered to end the European portion of World War II. This occurred 
late at night in Berlin, which therefore made it May 9th in Moscow. The end of World War II was momentous for all the Allies, but the Soviet Union suffered more casualties than any other country during the war. As a result, Victory Day became a major holiday until the fall of the Soviet Union. Under Boris Yeltsin's administration, the celebrations became muted. The country was in the process of eliminating Soviet institutions, and that was one of them. However, the holiday returned since Vladimir Putin came to power, and it is a huge celebration once again. If you have seen photos of the Russian army on parade, it's probably from Victory Day. And one theory is that Putin will wait until May 9th to declare mission accomplished in Ukraine. He will sell the gains made in eastern Ukraine as fulfilling the purpose of the war. This might give Putin a politically convenient way out of the conflict and stop the mounting casualties from ending his rule over the country. Russian troops might formally withdraw at that point, but the conflict will go back to 2021 levels of intensity fewer and unmarked Russians still participating in a Ukrainian civil war. Number four, Putin gambles for resurrection. A May 9th end to the war would require that Putin feel comfortable with what Russia is currently holding onto if it ends active operations. But that might not be enough. A settlement is only as good as a leader's ability to politically survive it. Let's go back to World War I. By the end, it was clear that Germany was very likely to lose, and that a settlement would be better for all countries involved. Nevertheless, Germany continued to fight. The problem was that making the appropriate concessions to the United Kingdom and France would have forced the autocratic regime to make democratic concessions at home. Eric Ludendorff, a member of the de facto military dictatorship, described that the hypothetical granting of equal enfranchisement would be worse than a lost war. He subsequently increased his demands against the opponents, despite the German military fading. Ludendorff reasoned that if Germany makes peace without profit, then Germany, or at least his preferred version of Germany, has lost the war. Political scientists call this gambling for resurrection and it might be at play today with Russia. If Putin is vulnerable politically, something very hard to deduce from the outside, then he may find the war's current progress insufficient to negotiate on. That means a longer war that either ends after Putin can secure a larger swath of territory or continued Russian military defeats and a political disaster for Putin at home. Number five, negotiated settlement. It's also possible that Putin is not facing much domestic pressure at home. After all, from the Russian perspective, this is still a special military operation, not a war. If so, both Ukraine and Russia would be better off thinking about what the eventual outcome of the war would be, perhaps something like this as a hypothetical, and just implementing that without continuing the war to its bitter end. This would give them exactly what they would anticipate receiving if they continued to fight, except the soldiers that might otherwise die in the process would survive instead. As we've discussed before, however, 
Such agreements require consensus on what the eventual outcome would be. If Ukraine thinks the eventual division would look like this, but Russia thinks that the eventual division would look like this, then negotiations won't work out. Number six, Zelensky eliminated. This, at least, was Putin's hope at the start of the war. Reports indicate that a Russian strike team tried to parachute in on Kyiv, storm the presidential compound, and take out Zelensky. In theory, without a head of state to rally around, the rest of Ukraine would have immediately folded. That plot failed, of course, and at this point, a successful attempt would seem unlikely to lead to a quick end to the war in Ukraine. The past couple of months turned a relatively unpopular Ukrainian president into a national political hero. Assassinating Zelensky, arresting him, or whatever, might even backfire now, as it would only turn him into a martyr for Ukraine's cause. So perhaps we can scratch that one off the list. But that does not mean that Ukraine can breathe easy, because at number seven, we have the complete military defeat of Ukraine. Oh, how far we have come. In fact, your average interstate war lasts less than a year. By contrast, civil wars can drag on forever. Syria's current civil war began during the Arab Spring, all the way back in 2011. This length of fight isn't abnormal either. The civil war between Sri Lanka's government and the Tamil Tigers began in 1983 and didn't end until 2009. Civil wars are so bad that ongoing fights just accumulated over time during the Cold War, as did the average duration of those wars still ongoing. The main issue is that when a rebel group reintegrates with the opposing government, it must lay down its arms. But governments can later exploit the disarmed rebels. Anticipating this, the rebels continue to fight even when they are likely to lose. That may happen here. Even if Russia withdraws tomorrow, rebels in the Donbass region might keep going, and it would take a complete military defeat for them to stop. Number 10. World War III. The good news is that I think that this option is very unlikely. Far less likely than the other options discussed in this video. As bad as things are now, they are nothing like the peak of the Cold War. This isn't the Cuban Missile Crisis, when the world ground to a halt. Okay, we leave it at that, and uh, Alhamdulillah, I'd like to thank uh, Tobella for doing a brilliant engineering uh, this evening. Keep it locked on to Malka Sahaba for beautiful uh, broadcasting, a lot of knowledge coming through from the team and I. Till we meet you again, uh, we bid you, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.